we have to create the right vibe, you know, the energy and everybody at the organization has to feel so privileged to be here. It's, it's no other way. Thanks for listening to the Purely Arsenal podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at Purely Arsenal FP for all the latest Arsenal podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Purely Arsenal podcast. Today we have a drugs in sports special. Our guest is chief sports writer of the Sunday Times, writer of the now famous book Seven Deadly Sins, his 13-year pursuit of drug cheat Lance Armstrong. It's David Walsh. Hi, David. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? Jack, yeah, um, doing very well. Top man. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I have to start with with that. I have to start with to asking you some specifics about that 13-year pursuit. It's, it's um, one of my favourite things to re- read about in terms of um, tragic things, I guess, that happened in sport, but also fascinating things. Um, it was you and really Paul Kimmage, from my experience, and, and reading a lot about it, um, who led the way in, in, in uh, believing this American icon may not be completely clean. How difficult was it for you throughout that 13-year period, maybe towards the early point of it, um, to pursue an athlete that was becoming bigger and bigger in the sport every year? Did it feel at times like this could hurt or hinder even your own career? Um, maybe at one point when, when, when Lance sued me in 2004 and the case goes on for two years and we lose, I suppose... You know, at that point, uh, you know, I, I could have been, it could have been considered that I was under pressure job-wise. I never felt it, to be fair to the Sunday Times. I never felt they were using this against me. I mean, it cost the Sunday Times a million pounds in in a 300,000 payment they had to make to Lance and in 700,000 of legal costs they had incurred themselves. So that's a lot of money for a newspaper. Newspapers don't make a lot of money anymore. And that was a big loss. But on the other hand, the Sunday Times always gave me the impression they 100% believed the story that we'd been telling. They they were convinced Armstrong was a doper, but our libel laws in the UK are pretty wretched. And as a result, we were always going to lose to the case. But as for my own point of view, I never felt it was um, like a difficult time in my life. I felt it was the most enriching time journalistically. I mean, I never had as much fun doing any other story than the Armstrong story. And I was working with some brilliant whistleblowers who were prepared to put everything on the line to get the truth out there. So it was, uh, it was like, I mean, I've used, um, I've used the analogy or the comparison many times, and I don't think it's, I don't mean to say it was anything like him. I mean, the Armstrong story was on a much smaller scale to, to, you know, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein chasing Richard Nixon. But, but this was a kind of a sporting Watergate, and I was the journalist involved. And if, you've, if anybody out there you know, can remember watching all the president's men, and if you ask yourself the question, did Bernstein and Woodward look like they were having a good time? They were having the time of their lives. I, I actually met Carl Bernstein about two years ago initially. We were both at, a, at an event. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, Carl, I've always had this view that when you and Bob Woodward were on the Watergate story, that you were, you were having the best time of your career. Is that how it felt to you? And he said, 100%, totally, completely, utterly. He said it was the best time. And I said, well, the Armstrong story wasn't anything like a Nixon story, but it was a sporting version. And I said, it was, it was actually great fun. And I loved it. I, and I knew at the time, 
I could be a journalist for another 30 years after this and I will never have as much fun as I had when I was on that story. It was great. So, so you, you, you will never, yeah. never get me to complain. No, absolutely. And it seemed like that when, when I was watching it. But um, as a journalist, though, did you get a lot of support in that inner... Oh, you talk about the whistleblowers. I presume people like Christoph Bassons and um, Betsy Andrea and Emma O'Reilly. Yeah. That we see so much in, in, in the movie. Those are probably some of the people that you're talking about, right? Yes. Um, but um, did, you get, did you get support journalistically, you know, with other journalists? How, how was that relationship throughout that 13-year period? Touch on that a little bit. Like, how were you viewed? Did you, did you feel a kind of different vibe coming from them when you were there every day? And you, they clearly knew that you, you were, you know, thinking differently to a lot of them, probably. Yeah, it, it was difficult with some and it was great with others. I mean, Paul Kimmage, you mentioned earlier, Paul was kind of my inspiration on the whole doping story. He'd ridden Rough Ride way back at, you know, whatever it was. 1990, 1991, it came out, a seminal book on doping and cycling. And it gave me a sense of what the sport was, was, was about. And then when I got on the Armstrong story, Paul was, Paul was my colleague at the Sunday Times at the time. And, you know, or in the early years, and we were always talking and he would have always been encouraging me. I mean, I was the guy going off on the Tour de France and getting obsessed by it. But whenever, you know, I get a lead, I would talk to Paul. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And we discussed it endlessly and there was great support in that. Um, you know, the people I worked with some of the times, Alan English, my deputy sports editor, Alex Butler, my sports editor, they were all supportive. I think a lot of journalists out there believed Armstrong was cheating, but they had a, a very tough time with it because they would have said, you know, David, you're going on a gut instinct and it's not evidence. And if we go on that, we'll be in trouble. And my argument would be, well, trust your gut instinct and then try to come up with the evidence. And but I know I was working for a Sunday newspaper and that gave me an advantage because I didn't need Armstrong as a source or as a as a person that would invite me to his kind of you know, exclusive press conferences. He would organize these these meetings with certain press people that he liked. Often there were mostly American journalists that he wanted to kind of influence. Um, I would never get invited to those, but I didn't need to. But if I'd been working on a daily newspaper, it would have been more difficult because I would have needed to churn out more stories and I would have needed more access than maybe, you know, Armstrong was ever going to give somebody he regarded as an enemy. So I was in a position to do that the story in the way I wanted to, partly because I was working for a Sunday newspaper. And the Sunday Times was a big enough newspaper to be able to take an independent line on this and say, and say, you know, let's go with this because we trust David's judgment here. And uh, I mean, when you consider, Jack, the first year Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France, it's 1999. He's come back from life-threatening cancer. He's 27 years of age. And that day that he had the yellow jersey on the Champs-Élysées, the Sunday Times wrote a story on its first victory and the headline on it was a flawed fairy tale. Now, it would take 13 years for that story to unfold, but you could argue that on day one, the Sunday Times was on the right side of history. And, and, um, and the next 13 years, there were at different times great fun. I mean, I got a bit obsessed about it for sure. I remember at the Open Championship in 2005, uh, Paul Kimmage kind of um, pulling me to one side and saying, look, David, you've got to let this go 
because it's too much. You know, you just, you, you know, you, you've become too wrapped up in it. And I remember saying to Paul, you know, I, I get what you're saying. And, and, and I know you're probably right. And I, I, I will. I will take your advice on this. And then I'm going away thinking we brought out with Pierre Ballester, a French journalist. I brought out L.A. Confidential, which was like a book we could only get published in France. L.A. Confidential, Les, Les Secrets to Lance Armstrong. And uh, I, I finished that conversation with Paul and I, I wake up the next morning. And I'm thinking, how can I get an English version of L.A. Confidential out somewhere? And my, my aim was to get it out in America, where people in the U.S. could see this great champion. Actually, there's another side to the story. And the other side is that is saying it's not true. It's a fraud. And uh, so even though I was telling Paul, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. It's not what I felt. I was, I was, I was on a kind of, a, I was on a bit of a mission, and nothing was going to deflect me. And it's understandable from my perspective when I'm watching it and I'm reading the book. It's you've spent so much time and so much effort on it, and you believe in it so much. Um, it's, it must be very, very difficult. To, to give up and and the quote from Greg LeMond you know that you know the greatest fraud yeah. as, as we see and, and and that was something that blew up but what was the key moment that you felt he was a cheat I mean you talk about in the book about you know Christoph Basson's that that point uh, was that the yeah, key point that you was. felt that his reaction yes. yeah was it, it was okay. totally I mean that was the first Tour de France that Lance won here you had this young French guy well not that young roughly the same age as Lance uh, as it turned out physiologically they were very similar they were similar type bike riders, both very talented. Basson could achieve nothing. Armstrong could totally dominate the race. And Basson would say, the reason is Armstrong and others, other guys at the top of the, of the general classification are doping. I'm not doping and I can't compete. And, I, you know, and Christophe Basson actually came up with a, a really interesting idea that I'd never heard before this. Um, he, he used to say that he, he felt he was a victim of passive doping. In other words, he would ride so hard. He would go into the red zone so often and in such a sustained way, trying to keep up with people who were doping, that he would endanger himself. He rode in a race in Italy one day and, he, and it was like going crazily fast. And he was absolutely on the river to keep up. And he crashed into a, a, concrete, uh, a concrete kind of refuge been huge big kind of container and almost killed himself and he said if he had died that day it would have been because he was going way beyond his natural boundaries in order to keep up with doping athletes and his attitude was this you know as you can die from passive smoking you can die from passive doping as well and uh but Basson was he was the catalyst at the you know in that for me to say here you've got two guys both telling completely opposite stories. Christophe Basson says all the top guys in the race are doping. Lance Armstrong says nobody is doping. Who do you believe? Now, honestly, you would have needed to have been a complete idiot to believe Lance over Christophe Basson. All the evidence was on, was on Basson's side. All the logic that he was telling the truth was on his side. And I had zero doubt. Now, the next thing, though, is that's okay, you knew. But when did you know that the truth was going to come out in the story? And that would have been, 
Landis, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Was it Floyd that Landis? Is is the that, moment, is that the yeah. moment? Floyd Landis was the moment, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I, I'm away in the Himalayas walking with Lewis Pugh, the environmentalist. He's going to swim in a glacial lake. We're about one hour south of, of the um, of, um, base camp. You know, we're about, I don't know, that meant we were about 22,000 feet up. And, uh, and I get a phone call from my sports editor saying, Floyd Landis has, has, has sent out incredible emails talking about the doping that went on in the US Postal team. And that was the moment I knew then the tide could not be turned back. This was, the truth was going to come out and the truth was going to be established and people were going to see that Lance was a doper. And you talked about at that moment that he really lacked him and, and um, Johan Bernil, who you, who you had a strong disliking for, I yes, think it's fair it to is. say. Um, um, and, and I didn't, I, only obviously from the movie and, and what you read about, I, it doesn't take, don't take them too well either. But um, you talk about him lacking any emotional intelligence at that point and not realising that he's basically dealing with a, a ticking time bomb, as you called it, which I think was a perfect way to put it, really. But um, that's, yeah, that's, inc- that's an incredible moment, isn't it? Because if you gave him a role on the team, like you said, maybe this doesn't happen. Do you think maybe you don't end up with a story that you have if he doesn't return as well, David, oh, yeah. he, he makes his comeback in yeah, 2009. Yeah, zero doubt, Jack, zero. Um, if Lance doesn't come back, he doesn't get found out. Because when he was away from the sport, you know, he left in 2005, he just becomes part of history then. And it's like a lot of people might have said, well, come on, you don't believe, you don't seriously believe Lance did all that clean. But the general public did. And if you check the record books, his name was there as the seven-time winner of the tour. And that's how it would have stayed if he hadn't come back. And I mean, I think Lance himself said this on the, in his, in his um, seminal Oprah Winfrey interview. You know, he said, if I hadn't come back, I wouldn't have got caught. And I, I totally agree with Lance on that. So it was, uh, but it's like I've often said, people said, you know, uh, what do we learn from that? We learn from that that the oldest theme in Hollywood is true. You know, the, the, the jewel thief, the, 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 the bank robber, the guy who organized these most incredible heists. Uh, and he then makes a ton of money doing that because he's very good at what he does. He goes into retirement. He's drinking a beer by a swimming pool. And somebody turns up and says, one more job. Would you go back for one more job? And Lance couldn't resist the possibility of going back for one more go at the Tour de France. He actually had two more goes at the Tour de France, but the bottom line was he couldn't stop himself going back to try and do it one more time. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely the greatest mistake of his, of his sporting life on his terms. I mean, you or I might say his greatest mistake was to, was to just commit himself to doping after having recovered from cancer. But in Lance's terms the greatest mistake was to come out of retirement. Yeah, and he didn't, he didn't in, in the interview, you say, David, he, he didn't really come fully clean. Um, what do you mean? Elaborate uh, on that a little uh, bit for me. Yeah. What he, do you mean he, by that? When I say he didn't come fully clean, there's lots of things. I mean, he's never been able to give Betsy Andreo proper closure on her part of the story. Betsy was incredibly brave. She was... You know, however committed I was to getting the truth out there, I was about 10% as committed as Betsy. I mean, she was like, she was the ultimate in crusading 
um, human being wanting to see the truth out there. She, she was desperate that this story would be properly understood. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, in no small part on, on her behalf that it did come out. But, but uh, Lance just needed to say at the Oprah Winfrey interview that, look, when Betsy said she heard me admit to doping in a, in a consultation at Indiana University Hospital in October 1996, she was telling the truth. Now, Lance couldn't say that. And in my eyes, it's uh, the story as to why Lance couldn't give Betsy that admission is very interesting because I think there was a conspiracy and there were, there were affidavits related to that hospital that turned up in a court case with the insurer SCA Promotions who owed Lance five million that they weren't prepared to pay him. It went to a, a, an arbitration and, and, and in the arbitration, basically, um, a doctor said that that admission could not have taken place in an affidavit. Now, if Lance says the admission did take place, it means that a, a very eminent person in a high place committed perjury. But if you're asking me or Betsy Andreo, of course that admission took place in the hospital. Betsy Andreo didn't decide to make that up. And by the way, it was heard by her fiancé at the time, um, uh, Frankie, and Frankie, it was heard yeah. by Stephanie McIlvain. Stephanie McIlvain told me she was in the room at the same time as Betsy. Betsy confirms that she was, and Stephanie McIlvain told me that she heard exactly the same admission. But Lance had never been able to admit that, and Lance, of course, says that he wrote 2009 and 2010 clean. Uh, the the blood values, his blood values from those races do not support that. And uh, and I don't believe that he did ride those two as clean. And Stephanie went she back did. to her testimony, yeah. didn't she, in the end, um, yeah. to sort of save yeah, herself, for, yeah, for, yeah, which is really unfortunate. Reasons. You know, she was, she, she was working for Oakley. Her husband was working for Oakley. And, uh, and she, needed, she needed to work. She needed her job. She needed her salary. Oakley was a big sponsor of Lance's and I think maybe the last sponsor to jump ship, you know, when they all started jumping ship. Oakley was very supportive of Lance. And um, so it put, it put Stephanie in a really difficult position. And I must say, uh, you know, I felt, um, I felt really sorry for the position she got herself into. He never really fully comes clean on um, no, Michaela Ferrari either, does he? No. And his interaction and working with him, because and that's another person that he doesn't really fully. And and that's who I guess the biggest story is is you know all of the people, all the doctors, and all the people that were corrupt in helping this prolong this for so long um, f to to make cycling cleaner. As we're going to move off Lance Armstrong in a second, is, I mean that's what you'd really want, wasn't it? As a cycling fan and someone that's worked on cycling since what yeah worked yeah since the early eighties, yeah, but you, I suppose. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'm a romantic, you know, in the sense that I, I would never have expected Lance to, uh, to be hundred percent honest about people like, um, Johan Bernil and Michele Ferrari and some of the other people that he, he was associated with at that time, because Lance would regard, you know, the whole thing of remaining loyal to the people that were part of the team he would regard he would take that very seriously and the idea of snitching on former associates that would be anathema to him uh so you know what he was doing when he was going on oprah winfrey was to put up his hand and say i did it but please let's not get into the people who did it with me 
And, and, and you're right to say, well, ultimately, that's not much good to cycling. Cycling needs you to be 100% clean, and we need to know exactly who was involved. Now, most of mean Ferrari got a life ban. Johan Braniel got a, a long ban. I think that he, he ended up appealing and then getting a longer ban again. So, you know, yeah, a lot of these people did get, did get um, you know, it, it, Lance might not have pointed the finger at them, but other people did to a degree that enabled the authorities to take proper action. Yeah, um, moving off US Postal Service and something to, just a little bit more closer to home in Team Sky. Um, you spent a, some time with Team Sky, yeah. didn't you, in the early stages, um, about 13 weeks, I believe, you spent in their training camp. And, and you felt strike quite strongly at that time. I don't want to misquote you, but you felt quite strongly at that time that they were riding, well, as clean as you could yes. see. They seemed pretty transparent with yeah. you. You liked what they were doing. Um, since, since then, though, David, I think there's probably been some changes, maybe even totally. on your, your viewpoint on it. Um, um, and I just want to go into that a little bit. So for those people that don't know, I've got, I've got students that will listen to this as well. And um, so Team Sky is, is, you know, there's a lot of accusations that have gone against Team Sky, mainly from what I've seen of it is the use of TUEs, which is therapeutic use exemptions. For people that don't know about those, and I want to make sure I explain it correctly, these are basically banned substances that are used or given yeah. for a medical purpose. Um, and, and, and this is stuff that's coming out. There's still, I believe... Um, um, lawsuits. Dr. Richard Freeman, there's still things going on in the court with, with Dr. Richard Freeman, which was the, the medical doctor for Team Sky at the time. Um, how do you feel? What's your feeling about the credibility of Team Sky? Or I think it's Team, Team Ineos, Ineos now. Yeah, I believe now. it um, was um, It was a kind of a... Um, the team is outstanding in many, many ways. And uh, you're right when you say that I was offered the opportunity in 2013 to spend time inside the team. And I, I believe the team was clean at that time. Um, and I think the team, to, you know, in many ways, has been largely clean. But they weren't entirely clean. And they certainly didn't do the right thing in relation to Bradley Wiggins at the 2011 20, and 2012 Tour de France, where they, they allowed him to avail of a therapeutic use exemption for um, triamcinolone, which is a very strong... Um, corticosteroid and they gave him a 40, 40 NG injection which is a sizable amount of triamcinolone. Now they gave it to them a few days before the 2011 Tour de France and a few days before the 2012 Tour de France. Now if I'd known um, in 2013 that, that these um, TUEs had been given to Wiggins I wouldn't have gone near the team and you could, you could say well David should you not have played safe and and stayed stayed the hell out of it, probably. I think that's fair. Uh, I would accept that. Um, but I I kind of naively believed them. And uh, and when it came out, I think in 2016, September 2016, um, I could immediately see then that I'd been duped. But uh, but I wasn't the only one who'd been duped. All the fans who believed in the team. I mean, Bradley Wiggins was. BBC's Sports Personality of the Year, Bradley Wiggins was the was the athlete chosen to basically um, open the Olympic Games in London 2012. He was, um, you know, he's become a knight of the realm since then. Um, Team Sky, Dave Brailsford, Doctor Richard and Doctor Richard Freeman conspired with Bradley Wiggins to give Bradley Wiggins a therapeutic use exemption, which on a therapeutic level in my opinion, 
was not needed and was given to him for the purpose of making him stronger in the Tour de France, which is not the reason we should be giving people TUEs for. So in, as soon as the story came out, and it was a, a Russian hack site, Fancy Bears, that basically exposed this story, once that came out, to me it was black and white. It wasn't a shade of grey or anything like that. Team Sky had cheated, possibly legally, very difficult to... I mean, Bradley Wiggins still has that Tour de France, unlike Lance Armstrong. It hasn't been taken away. But in my eyes, yeah. it, when I look at it, I see an asterisk there. And the asterisk says, given a very strong performance enhancing drug that he didn't need. And his, fee, his team found a way of giving it to him, in, you know, inverted commas, legally. And, uh, and when that happened, I mean... I I changed my tune very much about Team Sky in that I immediately thought that Brailsford needed to resign and that um, we we needed to see Bradley Wiggins, you know, through new eyes. Now, I think in the UK that Bradley Wiggins is in a very difficult situation in that he's the guy who won the Tour de France. He's the first Briton to win the Tour de France and people don't look upon him a lot of people have questions about how he did it now. And uh, and that's not a great place for Bradley Wiggins to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now, if we go off from Bradley Wiggins, obviously Team Skies, they changed their name. Um, Dave Browns is, is still in charge, much. I believe. He's not... Um, and, and, and I believe you're probably strongly against that. You, you've spoken as much thinking yeah, totally. his position was untenable in the last few years. So it's, it's probably quite surprising that he is still in charge with everything that's sort of overhead still of, of Team Sky and still ongoing. Um, what about Chris Froome? What do you say to people that would say, because I think you have a little bit of a different feeling on Chris Froome, who also got, uh, well, he got a positive test for self yeah. which is an asthma medication. According to some of the research that I did, um, I think there's been 11 positive tests in 10 years for Salbutamol, and they've all been considered doping violations. And he had about a 67% um, over the permitted level for Salbutamol levels, which is what this is just according to the research that I, I, I've done. But you don't necessarily believe um, Chris Froome is, is guilty. What, what do you say to people that would say, well, yeah. is there a massive difference well, between what yeah. Chris Froome did and what Bradley well, Wiggins I, did? I think there's a massive question mark over uh, Chris Froome's salbutamol reading. Um, where there's not over Bradley Wiggins, is in, and let me explain this. I mean, when it happened, um, mm -hmm. I thought the, the, the narrative of the race pointed to Chris Froome doing something. He, he, I, I'd been talking to him during that, during the, or at least by text message at least, during that Vuelta. I wasn't on the race, but I was in touch with him. And he, he was telling me that he was, he was quite sick coming towards the end of the race. And he didn't lose his jersey, but he lost time to Vincenzo Nibali about three days from the end. And I thought, you know, next day he's really going to struggle. And the next day, he was stronger and he actually gained time on Nibali. And that was the day he had this very high salbutamol reading. So to me, that looked incredibly suspicious. And the first Peter, first, the, the, my first kind of column on that in the Sunday Times said, sorry, can't trust Froome anymore. And obviously, Chris Froome wasn't one bit happy with that. And um, we basically didn't speak very much. And then the 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 case was adjudicated upon and the UCI investigated it and Chris Room was exonerated. And I and I'm 
saying, how can he be exonerated? And I go then and I find out that the World Anti-Doping Agency, at the time, independent of Chris Froome, nothing to do with Chris Froome, had actually been looking at um, what happens with salbutamol in stage races or, or multi-day events in any sport, you know. And basically the reason they had done this was that they suspected that there was a flaw in their methodology for salbutamol because their threshold for salbutamol was based on research done in, in one-off, one-day events. And so what they did was they got a, a, a very reputable... Now, this is the World Anti-Doping Agency. This isn't Chris Froome's lawyers or anything like that. This is the World Anti-Doping Agency had this piece of research going. And the research basically got 20 triathletes. And they got them all taking salbutamol every day, like in an inhaler, blah, blah, blah. And they go out the next day and they take more. And, and they were recording their salbutamol levels every day. Seven out of 20 went way over the limit. And the reason, according to the research, that they went over the limit was that salbutamol had, a, had this habit in some people of, of building up in your system and not being excreted. And then it would get excreted all in one day. And seven out of the 20 um, tested positive, And some of them had levels right up at Froome's level. And from that moment on, the World Anti-Doping Agency realized that its salbutamol threshold was never going to be enforceable again because all anybody had to do was ask the UCI, or World Anti-Doping Agency, to hand over their own research. And their own research said that the salbutamol threshold was really a kind of dodgy in the sense that you could have this build up and when it was explained to me what exactly had happened in this piece of World Anti-Doping Agency research, it was obvious that Chris Froome then had to get off, whether he was guilty or innocent. There was no way of making the charge stick. And, and if you were being fair, you would have to give the benefit of the doubt to Chris Froome and say, well, if it's possible that you can get this anomaly of salbutamol in a multi-stage race building up. And Chris Froome would say, the reason why it happened with him was after he had, the day he'd lost time to, to Vincenzo Nibali, he had, he'd been put on a strong antibiotic that evening and the antibiotic cleared up the infection and then bang, you, it's like the floodgate opens and he gets this incredibly high excretion of salbutamol. Now, whether, whether you kind of believe that or not is irrelevant the fact is, the research says it's entirely possible. And, and as I say, as soon as you knew that, you knew that Chris Broom had to be cleared, and he, and he was. So as I say, people can make up their own minds. Often in these doping cases, it depends on where people start from. Um, I, um, if you put a gun to my <laughs> head and say, you know, is Froome a legitimate winner of the of the tours that he won, I mean, he's won four. My my reasoning would, or my answer would be, well, that salbutamol thing was a bit of a question mark. It, it got answered in a way that you you had to admit was 
plausible and, and maybe it, it was an anomaly because the research says it could have been. And in the other tours he won, I don't have great doubts that Froome has found a drug that nobody else has or, or that they're all using drugs that we don't detect anymore. If it was so easy to beat all the tests, Jack, if people could just go and take what they really good drugs that nobody knows about, then you've got to explain how come Russia, with its enormous resources, they put whatever, was it 60 billion they spent on Sochi? But they wanted, the Russian state wanted to cheat so they would be the dominant team in Sochi. And of course, they were the dominant team and were easily the, 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 won the medals table, the gold, they won more gold medals than everybody else. But they, they knew they had to cheat and they knew they had athletes who were doping. And they couldn't, the, the, way they, the way they beat the system was to set up an alternate lab alongside the main one and, and get, get you know, doping samples out through a mouse hole, have an expert who could remove the cap without making it look removed, and replace the bad urine with clean urine. So if, if there was an easier way of doping, why would they have done that? If the tests were so bad, why did Russia have to go to such lengths to beat them? And my argument would be the tests are not that bad. They do find a lot of stuff and they are very difficult to circumvent. Um, it's not like when Lance Armstrong won his first Tour de France, there was no test for EPO. You know, it was guaranteed you could take EPO and you would never test positive for the first two tours he won, 1999, 2000. Then they were able to get EPO, but if you microdosed, you were okay. Then they could do small amounts of EPO, so you had to use blood transfusions. Then they found a way of finding blood transfusions. You can't do that anymore. You've got to do some. And eventually, the athletes come to a situation where, you know what, there isn't that much we can do now and, and it go undetected. And, uh, and by the way, Russia had a fantastic time at the, at the Sochi Olympics and President Putin invaded the Crimea about, about two or three weeks later because his standing in Russia was so high from what had happened at the Sochi Winter Olympics that he was free to do his thing in the Ukraine. Well, very interesting. What's your feeling on, and you're right, people will make their own minds up on, on, on certain athletes. And what's your feeling on cycling now and, and, and the credibility that it, that it stands with now? I presume the 2020 Tour de France probably won't go on with everything that's going on in the world at the moment. Um, but um, what, what's your feeling with, with, with cycling now? There's a lot of people like myself that really enjoyed watching cycling as, as a kid and track and field, to be honest. And we're seeing um, lots of issues come up with that in terms of um, um, performance enhancing drug use or expected performance enhancing drug use with athletes that were, were my heroes as a kid. Um, well, I mean, I went to the Tour de France then? last year and I thought it was maybe the best tour I'd ever seen since 89 when Greg LeMond beat Lauren Fignon on the... Uh, in that last time trial, I thought it was an amazing race last year. I thought Egan Bernal, the young Colombian, was a fantastic winner, one of the most naturally talented bike riders we've ever seen. And hopefully he will go on and win the tour many, many times. Um, and I found it a credible race. I mean, you can argue that, um, that that's incredibly naive. Um, well, I would say to you, well, please. Um, my mind is open. Give me some evidence. And don't just say, well, they, 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 they've always been dopers. That's not evidence. Um, 
And I don't see any evidence out there that makes me think um, that everybody who rides the Tour de France for victory now is doping. And, and I, don't see, I don't see the evidence that says it's impossible to win the Tour clean. I mean, it may be, but, but if you're going to propose that as an argument, you surely have to come up with some evidence. And um, I, I mean, not for a second do I think everybody is, is, is clean. Not for a second. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not saying that. But I don't believe that the doping is at a level now where you have to dope to win the Tour de France. I, I don't believe that. And um, I didn't think, um, I didn't think, I don't think Egan Bernal is a doper. And, um, um, and I really, you know, I, I wasn't due to go on the Tour de France this year because I, w- I would have been doing Euro 2020 if, if, if that had been on. Um, but I wouldn't half, half have minded going back to see um, Bernal and Froome because Froome obviously is desperate to win a fifth, and um, he doesn't do um, he doesn't do subservience very well. But I can't see how if Egan Bernal prepares properly for the tour and is in good shape and has the backing of his team, I can't see how anybody could beat him. You know, especially if, if there's plenty of mountains, Bernal will prove himself the best climber of all. I, I think he's a he's an extraordinary talent. Well, 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 it's good. You're still going. Oh, yeah, we'll have to no, wait and no, see. It hasn't no, been really officially t- cancelled. Talking yet, about behind, behind closed doors. Right? How do you go behind closed doors for a race that's not in the stadium? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, yeah. No, absolutely. There's people running beside the bikes on the street. Yeah, I feel like that must be right. one of the hardest ones to do that for. Um, I haven't. I just looked at that yesterday. I was like, surely it's been cancelled, but it didn't seem like it had. So time will tell on that. Um, moving to football, obviously our, our podcast is, is a huge Arsenal podcast in, and we're focused always on football, but I, I, I like talking about um, different things. Arsene Wenger once famously said, it's very dif- difficult for me to believe that you have 740 players that go to the World Cup and you come out with zero drug problems. And he said a lot of these sort of comments and they've kind of got, you know, brushed under the carpet and things like that. David, you've said before, I believe in the Sunday Times, that football must wise up to the fact that it has a drug problem. Do you believe um, performance-enhancing drugs are as widespread in football? No, I don't believe they're as widespread, but I'm sure that there are um, recovery drugs that are being used in ways that maybe shouldn't be used. Um, I'm also sure that Football doesn't test as rigorously as it should. Um, you know, we don't really know um, how much testing there is. And if you said, would you be confident that if a, a top footballer tested positive for a performance enhancing drug, that we would know about it? I'm not sure. Because we know how much money is involved in football and we know... Um, um, that the people who run the sport haven't always been um, incredibly ethical and honest in their dealings. So y- you would definitely have that worry. But on the other hand, you look at football as a game and obviously there's, um, there's a really um, uh, a huge premium on the players being in fantastic physical shape and having unbelievable condition. And of course, drugs would help you do that. But but football doesn't lend itself um, as much as a sport like cycling does to doping, or it doesn't lend itself as much as a sport like athletics or even a sport like rugby, where they, 
where the physical collisions are so uh, uh, are such a big part of the game. So, I mean, it's very difficult to say what the problem might be like in football. But, you know, and, and I do understand Arsene Wenger has been has been quite vocal. And I've always felt with, with Wenger that it related to his time in, in, in Monaco and the fact that Marseille were, they were a doping football team. We know that from, from Tony Cascarino's book uh, that he did with Paul Kimmage, an outstanding book. And, um, and we know that from other stuff. And, 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 and Wenger suffered from, from, from that um, doping so it, I can see why he would have um, he would have the view he has, you know, because he he has been there. Um, but when I look, I mean, I cover the Premiership um, in England. Do I think when I'm watching this that all these guys are doped? No, I don't actually, because you know, a lot of these footballers, you know, they don't all end up with great lives afterwards. They don't all end up, um, you know, with plenty of money and 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 able to kind of cruise by in life. And I would have thought that if there was doping in football um, in the last, say, 20 years, a lot of doping, some of it would have come out. Some of it would have emerged. Not every player is going to go to his grave with all the secrets if it if it had like actually existed so um there are times when you think football needs to be a lot better about doping but do i think doping is endemic in football uh, i'm not sure that it is my concern has been david I, i've read and i've followed up on players some pla- some premier league players saying they yeah. were tested as little as once in their premier league career that was a uh, matty fryer of hull and i look at that and again i talk about the the or worry about the transparency it's just very very difficult to find how many tests are done lots of them seeming to be urine samples and not blood samples and we know with that you know you're only certain certain types of testing for certain types of drugs drugs with urine samples fifa famously said famously said there is no pill for skill but when you see the modern day game and how it's progressed in terms of more more games quicker recovery the game's moving fast all the time um the strength of the players is, is at a different level to Perhaps it was even 15, 20 years ago. Um, just want to touch on, just before you go, the story of Dr. Uh, Mark Bernard, which is um, an alleged doping case that happened where he allegedly was was filmed saying that he basically had, had doped up to 150 top Premier League athletes. As far as I'm aware, that story kind of went away and he disappeared and moved Yeah, abroad. I don't know much. Um, what do you uh, know about that As far that as I remember, it appeared in the Sunday Times, didn't it? Um. Yes, it did. Yeah, which is, oh no, well, well, I just thought and maybe I, I could mean, ask you about I'm, it. I'm possibly speaking out of turn here. When I read the story, um, and uh, you know, it was quite a big story at the time. I just had a sense of this will go nowhere because I just didn't think he was credible. I'm not saying that what he was saying wasn't true. I just didn't think he would stand up to scrutiny. And it was remarkable that it was a big story at the, uh, on the day it appeared. But it didn't. It didn't go anywhere. Now that might be in part because people in football didn't want really want to address it. But I thought if he'd been able to come up with with clear evidence that uh, it would have gone somewhere. And 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 that this is the thing, Jack, about doping that um, 
I'm just at the moment putting the finishing touches to a book that I've, I've written with two Russian whistleblowers, Vitaly and Yulia Stepanov. They're the, they're the two um, original whistleblowers in the great Russian, Russian doping conspiracy that's led to Russia being banned now from international sport for four years. They're going to appeal it, but you know they, they will struggle on the appeal. Um, but Vitaly and Yulia were basically, he was, an, he was a doping control officer. She was an elite athlete. They fall in love, they get married. She, she tells him about all the doping she has to do. He sees it firsthand. He sees the drugs. He's a doping control officer who goes to test people and he's told by the high up people in Russia, you can't test him, you can't test her. Uh, that's not, he's not for testing, she's not for testing. And he basically, um, um, he decides to blow the whistle and he starts contacting the World Anti-Doping Agency. He does it for four years. The, the World Anti-Doping Agency eventually passes him on to Hayo Seppel, to German investigative journalist who makes a documentary. When the documentary was almost made and Hayo was pretty happy with what he had, Vitaly and Yulia say, you know what, nobody's going to believe us. And um, Hayo says, well, what do you mean? I mean, you know, why would you be lying? We're not lying. But people will say we're just two small people, two losers telling lies. So Ohio says, what are you saying? And Vitaly says, look, we've, we've got to do tape recordings and videos of all these bad people who are, who, are, who are basically the pillars of the doping system. Now, the only person who could do that was Yulia because she was an elite athlete. She was connected to them. So she could go and meet them. And she went, she went to meet them and she had her phone with her and she taped them and she videoed them. Top athletes, top coaches, the national medical officer, everybody. And the reason why they were believed and the independent commissions were opened up against Russia, independent reports done, the reason that happened is because they came out of Russia with the tapes and the videos. And until you get that kind of evidence, the commercial forces are so strong that they can actually kill an, virtually any story of doping in sport <clears throat> if you don't have that kind of evidence. So, you know, um, um, the story, the football story you referred to, it didn't have any of that. And of course, it was kind of washed away and he wasn't able to basically substantiate it. No, I, 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 I'm. When's that I'm, book out, David? If you don't tell you that, uh, it's out on the uh, all going well. Coronavirus allowing, um, in the sense that if the bookshops are still closed, there might be a postponement. But it's due to be in the shops in early July, and uh, and I, I, I'm, in a funny way, um, and this is a big thing to say. I'm, I'm far more excited about this book than I am about Seven Deadly Sins. Um, because I think this is this is a really intriguing wow. story because it's um I would describe it as um it's a love story first and it's a it's a doping thriller second. Yeah. By the way, well, by the way, oh, by the way Jack, lastly, it, yeah, it's called the Russian Last affair. question. Yes, go on, David. Yeah. 
Yes. The Russian affair. Okay. And we'll be looking out for it in the summer. All, everything going well. Hopefully the, the lockdown goes away. Just a quick thing. Um, someone that's really close to our heart is, a, is you know, because he's an Arsenal fan, but also I, I'm a huge track and field fan, um, was mm. Mo Farah. Now, I follow Mo Farah from a very young age. I'm sure you did as well. And I, again, it's where you start with it. I, I, I really like Mo Farah, but I was always very suspicious of his dramatic rise to the elite level he was always very good but to the elite level once he moved to Oregon and he moved a similar time to when I moved over here and I followed it and I knew about Alberto Salazar Alberto Salazar has been banned for I think four years for, for a doping violations yeah. where do you stand on, I, on I'm, Mo I'm going to look like a guy as, who's as really soft now. on doping and I, I, honestly I haven't but I'm always conscious of <laughs> you've got to be fair and you've got to really read around the subject and you've got to study it uh, before you form damning views and you've just said something now you were always suspicious about the improvement that Mo Farah made um, when he joined Alberto Salazar now I would argue or debate um, that if you go back on Mo Farah's career and you follow it and you look in detail at what exactly happened you will find that the biggest moment of his career in his eyes came when he defeated when he when he got the British record for 5,000 metres and he took Dave Moorcroft's record, which had existed forever, a record that many people thought would never be beaten, right? Now, that was something that Mo Farah had spent four years mm-hmm. trying to achieve. Yep. And suddenly he smashes that record. That was six months before he joined Alberto Salazar. And in Mo Farah's eyes, that was the breakthrough performance. That was the one that said to him, I'm going somewhere. So it's not entirely true to say that he suddenly improved when he went to Salazar. In his eyes, the biggest improvement and the run that convinced him he could, he could, he could become you know, a really top-class um, middle-distance runner came when he smashed that 5,000-meter record. And, and then one other thing that I would say, Jack, just to remember about Mo Farah, um, his times don't put him anywhere near... He has one time for 1,500 metres, which came at the end of a 5,000. That, that was astonishing. And that definitely was a time that made me think, wow. But, but his five and 10,000 metre times are nowhere near world, world bests. And, and of course, his record in championships is outstanding. Mm-hmm. He was the very antithesis of a Ron Hill or a Dave Bedford. You know, those old guys who could churn out world record after world record, but because they didn't have a finishing kick, could never do it at an Olympic Games. And Mo Farah is the very opposite. He, he's, never going to do a, he's never going to run a world record at 5,000 or 10,000. But every, well, it seemed, you know, in, 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 in Rio and in Beijing that he's just unbeatable in championships. And does that mean that he's definitely a doper? I'd say, well, show me the evidence. And I argue this, or not argue it, I discuss it with Matt Lawton, who works with The Times now, great friend of mine, and Matt has written a lot about, and I, I say, Matt, yeah, course, I just yeah. don't see the definitive evidence. I don't see it. Uh, and, uh, and just go back and check on that 5,000-meter run and look at the time when he broke the British record and read Mo's account of that race at the time. And in his eyes, this is breakthrough. And... He, meet, he, he joins up with Salazar six months later. So, so you've got to be fair to Mo Farah. And I, I'm not saying he's clean, but I, what I am saying is that there's, 
there's no evidence that convinces me he's a doper. Do you find it a little bit difficult? Because what I, I watch five thousand meter races and ten thousand meter races a lot, especially at the elite level, which he obviously is at, and a lot of them come yeah. down to a tactical moment, don't they? They really come down to the last two laps, where 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 I always found it difficult to judge the timing. But I do think that's a fair point. These times obviously haven't significantly sort of improved under uh, under Salazar and things like that. But the other thing is. Um, some evidence yeah. to say that I, I believe he did miss two drug tests. Now you could argue that you know that could be fair, but that I, I look at that and I, I, someone that's probably more on the suspicious line, like myself, I look at that and go, hmm, "That's a little bit suspicious." The other thing I look at is also the fact that his coach has been done for the doping for four years, and Mo Farah yeah. is the most successful athlete of this coach. So what I find really difficult to to look at, David, is is go well. This is the best athlete you've got. Yeah, and you're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're but, the but, manager but, of this athlete, and you've been done for doping. Yeah, no. What I would say to you, are you, are you doping the then, lesser athletes? When you read all the stuff about Salazar, what kind of doping did he do? How how did Salazar dope his athletes? What was the now, well, well, I, I, well, well, no, no, it's yeah. Uh, it's, well, it's difficult about trafficking of testosterone. They, 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 There's yeah, a belief that they, trafficking of testosterone they, they and tampering doping. You know that he was like definitely that, using testosterone, um, especially topical testosterone, and you know that that definitely was said. I, I I accept that he was he he was arguing that he was trying to see how people could could sabotage his run or what level of 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 testosterone the topical testosterone would be needed. That was his argument. I didn't believe that. I accept that. But mostly the reason I asked the question is because mostly what the, the, the modus operandi of, of Alberto Salazar was to get TUEs for athletes that didn't need him, especially related to asthma and uh and the uh, thyroid. He he would they were his they were his two main kind of ploys to help improve his athletes. But we know that Mo Farah never had a TUE. So that kind of kills that. Now, if Mo Farah had had a, a TUE for a, for a thyroid drug, you'd be absolutely entitled to say, well, that's what all the people at Salazar were doing. That's what, you know, Galen Rupp had it on. He was encouraging all his athletes there to get TUEs. And many of them did. And that's why, that's why the United States Anti-Doping Agency went after him. They felt he was abusing the TUE system. Now, Mo Farah never got a TUE. So wh what do we say then? You know, well, okay, maybe he gave Mo topical testosterone. Maybe. But what evidence do we have that he did? We don't have. You know, the thing is, Jack, what I've learned is that you have to be sceptical. You have to look and say, can we believe this? But you shouldn't be cynical. Because if you're cynical, you run that awful risk of condemning somebody who's not a cheat. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, no, Jack, that's a no fair problem. point. Thank you so much, David, for your time. We really appreciate it. The, the podcast is going to be out on all the no normal um, links, Spotify, um, Anchor. It will be on SoundCloud, I believe. Okay, Jack, it will be no on problem. iTunes. So look out for it, David. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs>